summer everybody this is cinema journal presents aka media i am christine becker i'm michael kackman and uh i'm coming to you from athens georgia you've left the compound i have i've traveled all over the place i think there's been like six different cities i've slept in in the past five weeks that's pretty impressive that could be like a whole like tv series or something it could be, yeah. Um, I don't know that it was dramatically interesting enough. There was there was injury involved. I did. Um, I, I have now experienced the Irish medical system, which I give a full thumbs up to. Very good service. Yeah, it probably wasn't rationed, was it? No, uh, it was very cute too. It was just I got stitches. I fell down and hurt my knee and had to get some stitches. And then you know they gave me a receipt, right? The the bill essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, you know, I can submit this to my my insurance company back home. And it's adorable. It's written on a piece of note paper and not like not like letterhead, but the kind mm-hmm. you would write, a, you know, a phone number on right by the phone. Nice. <clears throat> and it just says Christine Becker, you know, that has the amount. And then I think maybe the doctor signed it. And, you know, I'm thinking like an American bill would be this 10 page computer printout. But I've just got this little handwritten note oh. of my little bill. It's It's adorable. That's good. Well, I'm glad you got back all in one piece. Yeah, well, that's that's partly the reason we are uh, we missed a month there. We unfortunately didn't uh, catch July. I was traveling. Wait, I was wait a minute. It's isn't today like June 14th? Um, maybe I should check a calendar. Oh man, you're not. Oh man, I told. Oh, you're right. <laughs> summer. <laughs> that's how nice your summer has been, huh? Well, it's been uh, considerably quieter here in South Bend. Although we did have a tornado that came through. You know, here's another crazy thing. So I was in the British Isles for 18 days, never had to pull out an umbrella. Mm-hmm. And then I heard South Bend had like set a record for rain and then had this crazy tornado wind thing going on. So yeah, nuts. Well, hopefully the rest of the summer will be relatively uneventful. Exactly. And we should be back on track for the rest of the summer for our podcast, including two days, which has got some very exciting content for you all. Very good stuff. I had a conversation with Jennifer Peterson from the University of Virginia about the very curious history of First Amendment law and film. Yeah, a fascinating conversation. I found that a really compelling interview. And then uh, we go back a couple of months to the Craft of Criticism conference that happened at Notre Dame. I recorded some uh, some commentary from that. So we've got a, a really nice Vox Galari from that coming up. Excellent. Let's get to it. All right. I am now joined by Jennifer Peterson from the University of Virginia. She is here to talk to us about whether or not films can speak, or perhaps more to the point, whether or not they are speech or were speech. Her article, Can Moving Pictures Speak? Film, Speech, and Social Science in Early 20th Century Law, is in the most recent issue of Cinema Journal. Jen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Your article is about the mutual... Film decision in 1915, which essentially characterized film not as speech, but as conduct. Can you explain that? I can try. Um, so this is, I think, a really important and 
underanalyzed aspect of the case. The case is, of course, incredibly important because it defined uh, films as not speech, as being something that could be subject to censorship, which meant that all those uh, censor panels that were being, or boards that were being constituted at the state and city level in the, you know, in the teens were legal. They weren't violations of free speech guarantees. Mm-hmm. And so this enabled the censorship of film for the next 30 years. And, and you know, Lee Grieveson has argued this was incredibly important to the actual constitution of Hollywood and the Hollywood self-definition and kind of consolidation around entertainment um, and fantasy as what it, what it sold. So this is an incredibly important decision. And the fact that what enabled the justices to make this argument was a classification as film as conduct is the really strange thing here to me and the thing that I don't, I don't think we talk about enough. Yeah, you, you say this political decision was underwritten by a set of ontological arguments about the nature of film and how it communicated. These arguments culminated in the assertion that film was a form not of expression, but of conduct. That's, that's a huge claim. Yes. Um, well, a lot of decisions about um, new technologies, and well, especially media technologies, are based on these kind of ontological assertions about the nature of the medium and the communication that happens in them. And these assertions are generally, um, to go out on a limb, not that well-informed, I think. They are discursive and ideological. The justices are often mm-hmm. grappling with new technologies. They're using whatever tools at their hands they have in order to define the what's going on with this new technology and this new way of communicating. And so they're grabbing the available discourses. So you have these very, very interesting moments where they have to, in order to think about is this speech or not, make some kind of sweeping definitions about the new medium and try and like, place it within understandings of speech and communication that are prevalent in the day, at the day. Yeah. If I read you right, a lot of this boils down to um, essentially a struggle over what kind of analogy will be used to make sense of the, of the thing, right? Um, and here... Is it fair to say that it, it largely comes down to a, a distinction that, that's being made between the press and theater? Yes. Um, and this is, this is what pushes me to say it's more about bodies than, well, it's as much about bodies as it is about visual communication. So mm-hmm. often, you know, we think that the mutual decision was about um, images versus words, which is, of course, important, an important part of what's going on in this decision. Um, the difficulty the justices are having with parsing a purely visual form of communication with deliberation, which they understand as being about words. But uh, it's also clearly about the particular images on the screen, which are of bodies and about the bodies in the theater um, Mm -hmm. watching it. It's about what the films do to us, right? Yes. It increasingly becomes that. Um, Certainly, and I, I look at three different cases in order to understand this assertion of films as conduct, and it changes from 1911 to 1922. In 1911, film as conduct pretty much means, well, it's just the action of a machine. So therefore, it's nothing original. There's no real mental activity going on here. There's no authorship behind the film. It is merely mechanical action. Mm-hmm. To, in 1922, it being about what films do to the people in the theater watching them. So, so the action of um, projection or the on the on the bodies of the audience. 
And so, yeah, theater, it ends up becoming the body of law that's really important. They're like, well, we censor theater all the time. And the reason we censor theater is because there are all these unruly masses together in the theater, co-present with these actors, and there's this kind of, you know, intense affective moment going on there. And so that's affect, the subject. So affect can be regulated, but... Yes the intellect can't, right? I mean, that's the presumption that, the, that these higher faculties, yes. our critical reasoning is something that is so precious that it, that it shouldn't be, uh, it can't be infringed upon by the state, but our affective physical yes. responses to, to things is fair game. Yes, because it's dangerous. And yeah. it is what might lead to revolution, to the unruly crowd, to social disorder, right? And one of the things that really struck me in the mutual decision is their assertion that, yeah, sure, films are a medium of thought, but so are many things, circuses, the theater, and God knows we don't want to let those be considered free speech. Um, so there's a, <laughs> this distinction that's being drawn between higher and lower forms of thought. So, yeah, films are affecting us, and you know, minds, but not your higher level of mental processing. Only the more base primitive mind is right. being affected, right? When you think about Munsterberg and his ideas about mm -hmm. uh, film as being motor stimulus, it's not, a, it's acting on your body through your mind, but it's not the same level of mental activity that um, is aligned with reading, deliberation, and opinion formation. And this is the, the really important distinction they're drawing between opinion formation and deliberation and the type of automatic responses that you have from film and so, effects or influence that film has. So, you know, like Clara Bow uh, parading before the camera is kind of visceral and and um affecting what would happen just kind of going back in the wayback machine what would happen what do you think would have happened if someone had pursued a free speech case not with um american commercial film but with a film of a political speech or eisenstein you know and and what about mounting a defense of film as speech by talking about dialectical montage or something. I mean, what, what would have happened? You know, that's a very, very interesting thought experiment, um, especially thinking about Eisenstein. Um, I suspect that you would have had a similar set of ideas about this not being rational, precisely because that was such... The, the juxtaposition is suggestion. All right? Oh, right, so it becomes a psychologically manipulative. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I suspect that it, that it would have been a similar set of ideas. Um, one of the things, though, that's really interesting about the mutual case is it's not about any particular film. Mm -hmm. They organize this case, and, and mutual is a distributor, and they... Um, you know, they challenged censorship um, boards in a number of different states, mm -hmm. and they use different legal arguments in a lot of these different cases. The one in Ohio is the one that actually makes it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in, in this one, and I don't know how they organize the other ones, but in Mutual versus Ohio, it's, it's not about any particular film. It's about film in general. And mm -hmm. so they trot out, you know, I can't remember how many pages in this legal document. It's like, 15, 20, 25, something like that, is their film catalog, emphasizing all of the different types of film they have, which really emphasizes the educational, factual films, science films, um, uh, 
you know, actualities, news reels, essentially, mm-hmm. all of these different things that they do and how socially uplifting and moral they are. Because, of course, that's what they have. That's the framing that they have to put it in is the morality of the films. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily just about Clara Bow, but they're trying to emphasize this is what we do. These are the types of films that we um, that we distribute. So they are trying to show a broad variety of different functions of film, social functions of film. And it still is not enough. No. They're having none of it. Not enough. It doesn't. It doesn't um, trump the Industrial Commission of Ohio's um, argument that films are more powerful than mere words, and that a physical, you know, that um, you know, a libel via film is tantamount to a physical assault. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing greatly here. Right. One of the interesting arguments in the, the brief that the Industrial Commission puts forward. Mm-hmm. Another really interesting tidbit here, right? The Industrial Commission, this is kind of like OSHA. It's kind of mm-hmm. like OSHA is the, um, is the uh, regulatory body that is putting together the um, censor board that is overseeing film, which also tells you something about the way that films are being understood mm-hmm. as very literally having to do with hygiene, sanitation, and, and safety. Right. In a very so OSHA, the, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration? Yeah, that would be the closest thing to an industrial yeah. commission, as I understand it. So like... A ladder has to be able to support human weight, and films can't make us feel nasty things. Yes, and you have to, <laughs> because, and the state has the um, authority to have to license the people who do the projection of films, because, mm-hmm. well, the state has the authority to, say, grant licenses to train conductors. This is an issue of public safety, and it's in a very physical kind of safety oh, that wow. they're... So you could actually have the same regulatory board uh, developing fire safety standards for nitrate film and also content standards for what, yes. what's on it. Yes, and, and yes, the dangerousness of the actual material is part of the argument there, too. Yes, wow. the transporting these, these nitrate films is, is dangerous, yeah. yeah. Was there a dissent filed on this case with the Supreme Court? No, and this is partly... Um, this is partly just normal. It, it was more normal for decisions to be unanimous at this point. The dissents weren't um, as common at this uh, time. Though, of course, in um, uh, the late teens, early 20s, you start to get, I think it's, I'm forgetting when Abrams is, but that's when you begin to get some very famous dissents, like Holmes's dissent in Abrams versus U.S., mm-hmm. which is where he takes... Um, you know, lays out his opposition to the Espionage Act and starts to build this kind of um, civic libertarian um, interpretation of speech rights that really changes First Amendment law. That begins not that long after this. It's only, you know, it's less than five years after this. You do see these very, very important dissents, you know, Holmes and then Brandeis that become the foundations for modern First Amendment law. Uh-huh. So it was more common, but people dissented. And Holmes was one of the judges here. Holmes mm-hmm. thought it was totally fine that we censored films. Very interesting. Now, at least some degree of this of this ruling rested upon the idea of a of a vulnerable public, right? And it's presumably a vulnerable public that is increasingly diverse and in- increasingly immigrant and um, not necessarily educated in the ways that that necessarily the Supreme Court would like for them to be educated. 
Yes, you see a lot of the ideas about the influence of film come, I think, directly from ideas about how these particular groups of people think and um, process information. So this is at the time that you have a lot of uh, concerns, like the redefinition of, um, or what Michael Schutzen calls the redefinition of human nature was going on at this time because of the need to include all these different groups of people, you know, African-Americans, immigrants, working classes, and especially women within the class of the mm -hmm. human, and that this required thinking about thought very differently, which opens up the category of thought to not only being this kind of higher level, um, distanced uh, judgment, but also thought as kind of automatic responses to stimuli, like, you know, say hysteria or something like uh, this. Um, so I do think this is very much wrapped up in um, the ideas about kind of a broadening of thinking about mental activity into these higher and lower categories that is originating in part from social psychology, um, mm -hmm. sociology uh, of the day, all of whom are really concerned about how do you govern these um, unruly classes, these very pluralist but also unruly classes. Now and all of this then gets transferred. So all of these concerns get written into the definition of what film does. So these are concerns about the way that these different groups of people are thinking, and um, the, all of this gets transferred onto this particular medium. So it's a very interesting... Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, of course, those, these unruly people are not represented in the case. No. No, they're, they're only invoked as, as yeah. Yeah. now um, the other case that I look at in um, to understand the mutual discourse a little bit more because a lot of the, the language is really opaque in the, the 1915 mutual case. I looked at another case, a 1922 case, uh, Pathé Exchange um, versus New York. And um, that one is about a uh, censor board in New York uh, censoring a newsreel involving a woman with a bathing suit. And so the question was, does Mutual versus Ohio apply to um, newsreels? Because uh, the freedom of the press, right, is often mm -hmm. something that is, well, it was enshrined at, at the federal level, and it was also enshrined in free speech guarantees and state constitutions in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, in that decision, they do talk a little bit about the audience, and you very much see a vulnerable audience member, because you talk, they, they, the child is one of the key figures in this one, the child who... Um, is in, you know, that the movies create an association as real as any physical association between the child and, say, the gangster or whatever other kind of, you know, reprobate or near-naked woman there is on the screen. Mm -hmm. and, um, and you see them also talking about the way that uh, for this vulnerable and porous 
you know, who's, you know, psychically porous audience member, the movies create a mental atmosphere, which is then kind of osmotically absorbed by the viewer. Mm -hmm. So again, there's no processing. It's this direct, you know, kind of hypodermic needle of the morality and milieu and physicality of the film into um, the mind of the audience. So the audience is brought up, but it's of course a very, you know, um, cartoonish idea of the audience that, that shows up in this decision. I can't think of anywhere where that idea still exists today. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I, let me let me go back and correct myself. <laughs> um, it does show up. Actually, the audience shows up in Mutual as well. And they talk about not men alone or women alone, but all of them together, men and women and children alone in the dark. So yes. Oh my the, goodness. Yeah, the, the site of exhibition <laughs> is quite... Um, it, it, it is invoked directly in mutual and as a, you know, obviously, you know, disreputable and dangerous kind of situation. You know, one of the things that I think looking at this case and the way that social science was influencing the law at that time is to remind us that that's still going on. And so today, when we look at cases like Brown, you know, Brown versus EMA, which is a video game violence case. Mm -hmm. Like the ways in which the court is imagining harm there, that is completely different from the way they imagine harm in indecency. In the way that they imagine harm in indecency owes to the political concerns of the late 19th century and early 20th century because that's when it was codified. The way that harms are imagined in violence in video games is all about mid-century communication research and behavioralism. So it's all about effects and, you know, is one, you know, are we going to, does watching a violent video game change one's behavior, make one's behavior violence, rather than being about, is it about any kind of moral um, influence or interference on the individual watching it, which is very much what indecency is about. So it's really mm -hmm. interesting to look at the way that the moment at which these questions get introduced legally uh, um, is ends up in some way defining the way that they're talked about because they get embedded in these particular conversations. It's just such interesting intertwining of the academy, um, uh, for me, technology and law. Now, this ruling holds for, what, 37 years until the Miracle case in 1952? Yes, yes, which is astounding. Uh, considering That's a long time. <laughs> Yes, it's a very long time. Film changes a lot in that mm -hmm. time, and this uh, this decision stands. You know, obviously the the biggest change being films become talkies, so it's no longer about whether silent films can speak, but whether speaking films can speak. Um, <laughs> and, and so that the the issues and 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 you know there are a lot of there's a lot of social change in those years and. And so the operative distinctions and issues change between 1915 and, and 1952. Um, but one of the other really astounding things about how long this stands is that in the 30s, um, speech law is really blossoming. So in 1915, mm -hmm. it's really unusual to have a, a free speech claim made for movies because there just aren't that many free speech cases being brought forward or you know, not nearly as many as you would see later. Mm -hmm. But in the 30s, you really see this opening up of the law and this willingness to consider many more different uh, types of activity as protected speech. So you really see this, you know, um, 
the explosion of speech rights begins. Well, it happens in two, two eras, in the 30s and again in the 60s. So you see this explosion in speech rights in the 30s, and including a really um, an opening up of more different types of activity being considered expressive, such as flying a flag or mm-hmm. saluting a flag. And so symbolic expression gets uh, coined as a legal term in 1943. And there's an earlier recognition in 31 that flying a flag is expression. So you have all of these different symbolic forms of communication becoming recognized. Yet it's not until 52 that film is oh, that's fascinating. You know, uncensored. Yeah, because if, if flying a flag is protected speech mm-hmm. how is that not conduct well it is conduct yes yeah. and this is the beginning of this new category of speech which is um alternately called symbolic expression or expressive conduct or mm-hmm. now speech plus so it's recognized that some forms of conduct are expressive and so therefore we have to look at those forms of conduct and you know legally say well you know, was this expression, look at conduct to determine whether it's expressive and then whether a law is trying to quelch that expression. Is it in some way restricting that expression? Right. And of course, now today, writing a check is speech. Right. Yes. Yes. This opens up. So this is a wonderful, okay, there's a couple of things. This is, it's, it's wonderful in an abstract sense, because once you start recognizing that conduct is speech and, and especially when we have this proliferation of discourse and knowledge about communication, like communication has become such an interesting object of inquiry in the 20th century. And we talk about so many more things as expressive or as communicative. Mm -hmm. Once you recognize actions as speech, it becomes very, very difficult to put a lid on it. Anything is Mm -hmm. expressive, right? Mm -hmm. We can really render anything that we do expressive. Um, so the law threatens to kind of unravel at some point because if everything is protected, expressive, nothing is regulated. And it doesn't actually operate quite that simply in, in the law because not all expression is always protected. But it does at a, at a basic, you know, kind of intellectual level creates these, these problems. You, know, you have to have some kind of limit on what is expressive. And there isn't a very good one. So this is filled in on an ad hoc, discursive, or if you wish, ideological level in, mm-hmm. in legal decisions. Okay. And, and so the expressive conduct is really great because it opens up um, a lot of different types of speech that were not before considered, um, you know, to be erudite or eloquent, right? Speech that is associated with people of color, women, working classes, um, becomes legible legally as uh, free speech. Right. Um, by seeing action. And, you know, the biggest one we can think of probably is sitting or marching silently in protest. That becomes open to expressive, uh, to protection. But at the same time, or not at the same time, but later, um, chronologically, this also then ends up uh, transferring all of those wonderful um, moments of liberation for, you know, formerly excluded peoples onto corporations and um, financial transactions. So it's really this kind of double-edged. Oh my, oh my, this is tangled. Yes. So where does it go? I don't know. 
but this is part of this is part of what I'm working on in the book that I'm writing right now. Um, and some of these things are literally chapters in the yeah. book. I'm interested in the way that um, speech rights in the 20th century in America they have expanded greatly, right? And all of these ways that have enabled formerly disenfranchised types of speech to be recognized. And usually we talk about that as a, a history of politics and, and social mm-hmm. movements, which are, of course, of course, incredibly important. But um, I think it's also a history of media technologies and communication research and discourse. So I'm interested in looking at the ways that new communication technologies have opened up the way that scholars and legal thinkers look at communication and so how they define speech. So usually people writing histories of free speech are talking about um, a history of the freedom. And what I'm interested in is a history of the category of speech itself, how the understanding of what is communication, what is speech has broadened and complicated in the 20th century. Um, so looking at how film begins to get us thinking about symbolic communication, which isn't recognized initially, but later becomes legally recognized film advertising and other forms of visual communication. Um, I also suspect though I have not, um, gone through and done the, um, haven't pulled together evidence, but my hypothesis about um, the Citizens United things that you're asking about and that this money is speech, mm-hmm. that there's an important precursor for that and genealogy of that in um, looking at um, broadcasters, radio and then TV as speakers, because these technologies Um, asked the courts to look at a very different type of speaker. Usually they looked at individual speakers. And um, so with radio, radio is clearly speech, you know, oratory, Mm -hmm. yet it is not necessarily only an individual speaker. Many cases are corporations who are doing the speaking. So these are some of the early cases where um, the courts end up grappling with corporate speakers without, not under that name. but I think it's an important moment where they begin to think about these things. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. These are really fascinating issues. Thank you so much for opening up this little window into this, into the, into them. Thank you. It's really great having you here. Jennifer Peterson from the University of Virginia. Thank you. Thanks. really enjoyed that conversation, Michael, both for the history that you guys talked through and then also just the, the present perspective. It's issues that continually come up about how to define what these forms of expression are and then how those end up getting taken up in public discourse and law. I mean, these are mm-hmm. really fascinating issues that are still kind of reverberating today. Yeah, absolutely. And and these, I mean, they're never resolved, right? You know, a new medium comes out and all of a sudden you have this kind of discursive struggle over what the thing is and, and which has all these consequences for how it will be regulated or not. Right. And various people with various stakes and how those things get defined. Yeah. It's really great work that she's doing. I'm looking forward to seeing the book that comes out of this. Yeah. And speaking about how things get defined, that's something mm-hmm. we academics do all the time from our various perspectives. And back in the end of April at University of Notre Dame, our, our home, uh, we had a conference called the Craft of Criticism Conference. And Michael, I'm going to let you explain what that is since you are one of the leaders of the uh, the party. Well, it was a conference that was uh, 
that we put together to bring together the authors of a book that I am co-editing with Mary Celeste Kearney. And we brought in, I guess, 24 of the authors who are in the book to essentially talk about methods related to you know, their, their particular areas of study. Right. And it was a fascinating conversation. It was a conference type of which I've never been to, you know, perhaps no one's ever done one like this, where authors who are going to write chapters get to discuss what they're going to write about. And then the other authors get to chime in and say, you know, that's interesting, but here's something else you should, should think about. Or I'm doing this chapter, what territory should I do compared to what mm-hmm. you're doing? And it was a really fascinating way of looking at essentially a form of collaborative scholarship that will result in individual articles. But it was so exciting to be part of that kind of uh, intellectual atmosphere. Oh, it was great to it was great to have you participating in it, and you managed to get some uh, nice sidebar conversations with some of the people there. Yeah, yeah, this is a Vox Galari piece where we uh, talked to some of the participants, and the idea came from Jonathan Gray made a comment about his particular area, which is paratext, and about getting students interested in this area and kind of understanding what it is and what's at stake in that particular area. So I thought that'd be really fun to ask each of these participants, and each is in charge of a certain area of study, a certain approach to ask each of them if you had to assign to a student one piece of work in your area that you think would really hook them, would make them say, oh, this is a very interesting area of study. I would love to read more on this. What would that one piece be? So uh, I've talked to about, I think, about 10 or 11 of the participants, and they gave some really fantastic answers and gave me a, a nice reading list. I think all of us, a nice reading list for things to catch up on. Excellent. Let's give it a listen. My name is Diane Negra. I'm professor at University College Dublin. And the part of the Craft of Criticism project that I'm charged with is Stardom and Celebrity. And the book that I'm going to recommend is is a slightly offbeat choice, but it's a book published in 2009 that I think is really useful and hasn't gotten enough attention, at least in media studies. It's called Demystifying Business Celebrity. And it is, I think, such a good book for the, the particular moment that we're in, in the sense that Um, We don't tend to think about business authorities as stars, and yet they very much behave in this way. And I think it's been a problem in the U.S., not least, but plenty of places beyond the U.S., that we tend to treat business expertise as almost unassailable. And this book offers a number of specific kind of theoretical pathways into how we can understand the fame dynamics around business celebrities who write a lot of books. They tend to sell very well, particularly as as self-help. Uh, These people often appear in cable news. And I think it's a kind of celebrity that really warrants examination. And it's not one that we would typically think of. But this is a book that I think would be, um, I I think, a fairly thrilling read for students and and one that would give you a very different kind of lens on the financial culture, particularly after the financial collapse of 2008. I'm Cynthia Barron, and I'm working on acting and performance. And if there were one background text for everybody to read who wants to talk about acting and performance in film and media, the ideal background text for any of our work would be Sharon Carnegie's book, Stanislavski in Focus. It clarifies all of the mysteries surrounding the Stanislavski system and the variations of the method, and it also gives us some real respect for acting. My name is Jason Mattel from Middlebury College, and I'm uh, writing the chapter on narrative. And for me, I, I think 
There's a book that few people in media studies have actually read, but I find it one of the best works of narrative analysis of popular media. And it's Robin Warhol's book, Having a Good Cry. It's all about uh, the sentimental response to narrative, especially serial fiction, ranging from 19th century serials to um, soap operas to also forms of melodrama. Uh, it's a really wonderful analysis. It's very well written. And one of the best things about it is that it's very short. And you actually read it and you want more. And her work, Robin Warhol's work overall is wonderful. But uh, this book is, is a really must read that too few people in media studies know about. Hi, I'm Jonathan Gray, and I'm doing intertextuality and paratextuality. I really uh, like for paratextuality, it's by Robert Brookie and Robert Westerfelhaus. It's called Hiding in the Digital Closet. It's a, one of the earliest pieces on paratext in, in media studies, and what they do is they look at the uh, extra materials on the, the Fight Club DVD and how the authors are using that as a way to really, really try and insist that no Fight Club is not at all homoerotic. And so it's a really interesting way of, of looking at how they're trying to use this as a site to sort of fight back against something that just seems so screamingly obvious in the in the work itself. And so it's 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 a fun piece. It's really well written, and it's it's it sort of kicks off some paratextual studies. My name is Cynthia Chris, and I teach at the College of Staten Island. My area in the Craft of Criticism book is authorship. And I'm thinking about Stuart Hall's Encoding and Decoding, which is a very classic piece that many of us use in media studies. But it's a piece that I think bridges so beautifully for students. The extremes of the spectrum that they find themselves at between hard media effects theories and overly active audience. And they're able to work the ideas of encoding and decoding together so that they come up with much more nuanced responses to uh, our relationships with media. My name is Victoria Johnson, and I'm currently at University of California, Irvine, and I'm here presenting on the question of cultural geography as a method for thinking about film and media, both broadcast through digital extensions. And so my own work looks at questions of primarily the imagination of the heartland. But since that project came out, Heartland TV, there's been developing work on using cultural geography to look at, for instance, really popular television genres like reality TV. Uh, John Krzyzewski, who is at Seton Hall, is currently working on a project looking at programs like Jersey Shore and um, Flavor of Love um, and others in terms of cultural geography. So using representation of place and where people hail from as home as integral to how characterization happens in reality TV. This is Daniel Marcus from Goucher College in Baltimore. I'm writing the chapter on non-fictional media, which I take to mean documentary, reality TV, and journalism for this book. And my recommendation is an article called Bargain Media by Sherry Milner. And it is a manifesto, kind of a feminist manifesto for low-budget video that she published many years ago. And it anticipated the entire camcorder revolution. It said women don't have access to major production resources, so that just means they can be more creative, more imaginative, and more in control of their own production. So check out Bargain Media by Sherry Milner. I'm Nina Huntman at Suffolk University, and my area is game studies. I would encourage a student to read T.L. Taylor's 2012 book, Raising the Stakes. 
It is an excellent ethnography, a deep ethnography of e-cybersports, you know, uh, exploration of those who play video games as essentially a professional endeavor. One of the reasons why it's wonderful is because it is a deep ethnography. Um, we don't have too many of those in media studies, and we have even fewer in game studies. Also, she unpacks issues of industry relationship to fans, fans' relationship to gamers, what is a gamer, issues of gender, gamer culture. There's just a lot in there. It's dense, it's beautifully written, and it inspires me to want to know more and more about gamer culture and the industry's relationship to game culture. I'm Heather Hendershot. I am a professor at MIT, and my contribution to the book is on genre. There are a lot of books that are directly about genre that are very fine, that would be very useful for readers. However, the most important one for me personally um, was actually Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan by Robin Wood, which is not explicitly about genre, but which awakened me to the possibilities of genre cinema and the kind of really interesting work that people like George Romero and William Castle and Larry Cohen were doing. And that's really what initially spurred my interest in studying genre cinema. My name is Norma Coates. I'm at the University of Western Ontario. I am covering popular music, which I might just call music, from a media studies perspective. And the book I would recommend is not technically an academic book, but I think it's probably one of the best pieces of writing about popular music. And it's called the True Adventures of the Rolling Stones by Stanley Booth has a terrible cheesy title, which he likes. It used to be called Dancing with the Devil, but he likes the title. He told me so. And it's just a wonderful kind of cultural history of the Rolling Stones' 1969 tour through America with lots of detours through the American South, blues music, their history. And it really captures the evocativeness of music and kind of what it's all about in my mind. So I am Matt Hills, uh, and I'm from Aberystwyth University, and I am working on a chapter on audiences. Uh, and my recommendation would be Textual Poachers by Henry Jenkins, which I first read oh, many years ago when I was an undergraduate. Uh, and I discovered it not actually through a reading list, I just found it in a bookshop on a day out with my family completely randomly kind of found this book and I was like oh wow that's got kind of Star Trek stuff on the cover uh, I'm interested in that I've been a fan all my life I will, I will just buy this and read it um, just for my own interests and it pretty much blew my mind I have to say um, and I'd kind of resisted I was doing English and media studies and I had pretty much resisted um, looking at work on fans or that kind of stuff up to that point because I kind of felt like it was going to intrude on what I did in my life outside of being a student, really. But I just, I found it purely by chance, just picked it up, thought, okay, I'll, I'll read that. And I was literally reading it um, in the back of the car, because I, I was in Croydon with my family on a day out, and I read it on the way home in the back of the car, and I got home, and then I just went to my room, and I just carried on reading that book, and it is an amazing book.
Thanks for putting that together, Chris. There's some great suggestions in there, and it includes a lot of things that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of. So it's great to hear these these suggestions from these folks. Yeah, definitely. We took every one of those suggestions, and Bill Kirkpatrick, our awesome webmaster, put together a linked list of all of those items. So if you want to jump to our website, which is aca-media.org, and find that list, you can get links to any of the sources that were mentioned in that piece. Excellent. So uh, we probably have to catch up about our our summer viewing. Yeah, I'd like to say, and I've been watching a lot since it's been, you know, almost two months since we've talked, but I've been traveling so much and in various places where the Wi-Fi stinks, I haven't watched Mm. much and it's been a little bit painful. You know, I've still at least had enough juice to uh, to read Twitter. And so people are talking about Orange is New Black and the new 24 season apparently was really good and Rectify and Welcome to Sweden and all these things. And I'm in a little bit of pain because I haven't been able to watch any of that. Mm. So my next month will be lots of catch up. Well, did you when you were traveling in Ireland and the UK, did you at least have a chance to watch any? Uh, broadcast television while you're there? I did a little bit, not too much of, uh, you know, scripted series, anything like that. The big thing that was going on when I was over there, so I was in Ireland and, and London, was the World Cup. And so that was, and Wimbledon as well. So I watched a lot of sports over there. And I did do, uh, had two experiences of watching the World Cup in a pub, one in a London pub. Uh, it was the U.S.-Germany match. And it was, uh, the likes of which I haven't quite experienced before, they did a live commentary. So three guys, three comedians, and they were actually quite funny, um, did live commentary. So they turned down, you know, they, they did the, um, the stream where you don't hear the broadcasters and they did their live commentary. And they were quite funny, though. Of course, they were playing on stereotypes. So there were lots of German jokes, the likes of which would make many people uncomfortable. And then most of the American jokes were focused around either obesity, which fine, um, or the fact or the claim that Americans don't know anything about soccer, football, of course. And there were a number or claim. (laughs) Well, there was there were a number (laughs) of people in this pub who had gone there, a number of Americans who had gone there Mm -hmm. expressly because we were interested in it. And I'm no hardcore fan or anything like that, but I know the rules. But mm-hmm. a few tables behind me, there were some hardcore American soccer fans, and they started to get annoyed because the oh, comedians, yeah. they were making f- fun, not just in general, but they were making fun of us. Like they were accusing us of cheering at inappropriate moments because we don't know what's going on. And the people behind me knew their stuff. Like they knew mm-hmm. which MLS teams these guys were from and that kind of stuff. So they started heckling the comedians. <laughs> And it threatened to get really awkward and uncomfortable, but it was diffused. The the comedians basically, I think, sort of pulled a British self-deprecation card and said, you know, you're right, we're not very funny, and that kind of diffused the situation. So there was almost an international incident in the pub, but things were... Well, you know, that, that card is one that probably all of us could stand to play a little more often. Yes, definitely. But yeah, so and that was that was fun. And then I also did see one of England's matches in a pub, and uh, we came in right before England scored a goal. So it was wonderful to see everybody sort of explode and cheer. But then, of course, England quickly went in the tank, and uh, yeah. yeah, and then the crowd was like, "Yep, of course they stink." So, well, that that sounds like a good experience. It was, yeah, a good cultural yeah. experience. Well, I have to extend an apology, uh, a large public apology. Oh, um, okay. You know, when last we spoke, I was kind of hoping that this would have just, um, that there wouldn't be any record of, of um, me suggesting no way out. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> okay, so I watched it. Yeah, I hadn't seen it in, you know, since it came out. And I remembered it as this really kind of taut 
lean political thriller, you know, like a Frankenheimer or something. And, um, oh boy, it's kind of, you know, there, there are some great things about it. Um, but it's the whole relationship between Kevin Costner and Sean Young is, well, it's embarrassing to watch in certain moments. And the worst thing is that Will Patton is this like horrible, horrible, uh, sycophantic vampire homosexual. Oh no. Who is, is ultimately, you know, the, the problem that must be overcome. Right. And so, it's, you know, it's embarrassing, like curl your toes, embarrassing. Mm. But it's such a product of its time in that sense. You know, it's um, and it's it's interesting that that is something that is so easily forgotten, mm-hmm. not for all viewers, but clearly it was for me. And so I remember the thing that I remembered was this um, the final set piece of the film, which is this kind of hunt for Kevin Costner in the Pentagon. It's, it's like really nicely staged, great set piece. And that for me kind of stood in for the whole film in my memory. Mm. Um, not the larger narrative, not, you know, all this stuff. And so it's interesting when you go back, you know, you, you remember certain things about a, a film or a TV show and then you go back and watch it and it, and it's never the same thing again. Right. Sometimes. Yeah. I had a similar experience going back and watching The Untouchables, Oh, which this was a little while ago, but I remembered that also as this kind of, you know, just like a good sort of period action-y movie and and it does have some it has some good performances and some kind of fun stuff and lots of completely over the top uh brand palma nonsense and an unbelievably awful score that's just like so over the top that makes it really really difficult to watch the whole thing and of course that was one of those things that went right yeah. right past my ears when i saw them you know in a theater 20 years ago or whatever oh well in a more recent text you were mentioning you're, you've been watching borgen and got hooked yeah. on that yeah, Borgen is really, I, I really, really like it. It's a Danish series about the rise and career of a, a woman who becomes prime minister. And, you know, it's a political drama kind of in the West Wingish sort of vein, I guess. You know, it's got a, a lot of really interesting gender politics to it and some stuff that's going on with her family that seems really interesting. Um, and one of the things that I found myself... I don't know what you think about this, but Mm -hmm. for me, part of what makes a good political drama work is its believability, right? I mean, you have to kind of have this sense that that it is somehow commenting on the actual world of politics that, you know, that we operate in. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea, you know, I have I've been really interested in Danish responses to this series, but I almost don't really want to know because I have this sort of suspended fiction about <laughs> its relevance or its engagement with with issues in Danish politics. And I kind of don't want to be disappointed by learning that it's that it's maybe not. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe it's maybe it's like really tightly engaged with contemporary politics in the way that the West Wing sometimes was and sometimes wasn't. Right. And the way No Way Out was not. Yeah, No Way Out was not. And, you know, as much attention as Netflix has gotten and Kevin Spacey has gotten for House of Cards, mm-hmm. I find it really frustrating because the kind of um, the inside baseball of politics is so absurd in that show. And the um, political coalitions that form and stuff just seems so silly that it it makes it hard for me to to buy. And so I just end up watching it like I'm watching Macbeth, you know, <laughs> as opposed to something that is commenting on and engaging with the real political world, if, if that's something that we could actually call real. Yeah. And that reminds me of another one I, I want to catch up on, which is Veep. And I love the thick of it. I love that. And that the, yeah. the satirical edge of that and what it says about reality. And, and I have yet to watch Veep, but I hear some good things about it. So yeah. check that one out too. Yeah, I have too. And it sounds like it's it's evolved a bit mm-hmm. um, in some interesting ways. And I've I've kind of held off on that one too, but maybe we'll have to 
each watch it and catch up on it. Well, we've got what, like three months left in summer to catch up yeah, on all these, maybe, maybe four. four or five. It's, you know, I think it's going to be a long summer. I think so. Yeah. All right. So we'll, we'll get caught up on all that. Yeah, I think so. All right. Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University, with extra support from a Denison University Research Foundation grant. We would also like to thank the Society for Cinema and Media Studies for their funding assistance. And we would like to thank the invaluable help of our co-producer, Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison, and our technical producer, Todd Thompson. We also want to thank Jennifer Peterson for joining us, as well as the various members of the Craft of Criticism Conference who shared their reading tips. And remember to check out our website with links to all of the things you heard talked about in today's episode. That is aca-media.org. You can also follow links there to our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. And we will be back next month. I understand that July is going to be about 12 weeks long this summer, so... This is such good news. We'll see you in August. Yeah, yeah. 12 weeks from now. All right, cool. Cool. Bye. Bye. Bye.